Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 7, beginning in verse 36 and going to chapter 8, uh, verse 3. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we got a big chunk today um, out of Luke 7, and uh, so we've been walking through just sections of Luke that aren't anywhere else in any of the other Gospels, um, and in so doing, we've skipped some parts, um, and I mentioned this a little bit last week, Luke as a chapter, um, and this is kind of what shows you sometimes the helpfulness of chapters, which weren't originally in the Bible, but when they get added, they can sometimes help kind of collect the thought. Right? So Luke 7 does a really good job of doing that. It kind of collects the thought that leads up to something that Nathan just read in verse 49 where a crowd says, who is this? Um, and that's kind of a, a, a part that's weaving its way back through all of Luke 7. Uh, and so in a way we missed some of that because we didn't talk about the time when John uh, the Baptist, right, who's the guy who was baptizing people in the Jordan before Jesus' ministry, and calling people to repent of their sins. So he gets locked up. He's in prison because he calls Herod out for cheating on his wife and stealing another man's wife and <laughs> all this crazy stuff. Um, and uh, interesting that a prophet would call out somebody like that. So uh, he's locked up, and he sends the disciples to figure out, is, this really, is Jesus really the one who we're supposed to hope in? Like, is he really the Messiah? Because he's not sure because he did the ministry, he foretold the coming, and then he's not sure because what he sees in Jesus isn't perfectly in line with what he thought Jesus was going to be uh, in accordance with some of the scriptures. He thought Jesus was going to be a little bit more uh, of um, kind of a judgmental guy. Um, and he thought there was going to be a little bit more like wrath of God type of stuff coming out of Jesus' mouth. Um, but instead, Jesus is like, really friendly with sinners, right? And he's like only angry at religious people, but everybody else he's giving all sorts of grace to, and he's, he's getting this reputation as like a partier. Um, and Jesus basically tells John, yeah, it's me, but the fulfillment of the prophecies don't look everything like what you thought they were going to look like, right? And so um, in all that to say, in Luke 7, we're building to something, right? We've seen a healing from Jesus that was spectacular. We saw a resurrection from the dead, 
right? Like we talked about last week, this, this widow's son is raised up from death. Uh, we see a, a kind of an inner, inner, in, interesting interaction between John's disciples and Jesus, and then we see this last story of this woman coming to dinner, the kind of the unwelcomed guest, and, and how that all concludes. Um, so we're going to get to that big question, who is this who even forgives sins? Uh, because really that's the biggest question about Jesus. Not who is this who can heal people, right? Not who is this who can raise dead people. Not who is this who is kind of dumbfounding even to the great prophet John. Right? Those are important questions, but the most important question in regards to Jesus and his ministry is who is this who even forgives sins? Right? And sometimes we overlook the fact that that issue far and away towers over every other stunning aspect of Jesus' ministry, right? Because for so long we've grown so accustomed to the idea of Jesus forgiving sins. When, when in his day, a man standing up saying, I forgive you your sins, was a blasphemous declaration. Either as a man he's blaspheming God or as God he's telling the truth. Right? And so Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sin is the claim that he is God. It's the same claim. Okay, so if anybody ever tells you, Jesus never, he's just a good teacher, never claimed to be God. Like, nope, wrong. He said, I forgive sin. He stood in the place of God and forgave sin. It was a declaration of his divinity. Okay, so we deal with that today. Before we get to that, I wanted to go to verse, uh, to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And the only reason I'm doing this is because this is a really important, unique part of Luke's gospel. Um, but I, don't, I, I couldn't figure out how to do a whole week on these three verses. So I pulled it into this week uh, to talk about Jesus and how he's surrounding himself with women um, in his ministry. Okay? That there is something about the ministry of Jesus that welcomes women in a way that no other rabbi or priest or elder or teacher of his time ever did. Okay? And Luke, we've talked about this as we've been walking through Luke, that often in Luke we see him making sure that the audience understands that Jesus is including in his group of followers all of the least and the lost and the furthest and the, you know, the, the, the wounded and the Gentile and the children. Right? That's why we've called this series The Extent of Grace because Luke is making sure we see that there's these outliers um, to the typical Jewish culture that Jesus keeps bringing in, right? And included in that group is women, that they were considered in that day not, not really uh, able to, um, not really worthy even um, of the, the calling to follow closely after a teacher, after a rabbi. Um, and that had to do with, with, you know, really bad sexism in the day. Uh, a, a Jewish man would wake up every morning and say, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. Um, just uh, just a, a lot of cultural issues in the first century um, where education of women was not really happening, where uh, women were, were weak and vulnerable. We saw it last week with the widow at Nain that she was basically left as a as a homeless nobody without a son to provide for her, right? So this is kind of the, the, the atmosphere of, uh, the Judea, uh, of this, uh, this Greco-Roman world that Jesus walks into, and we find him welcoming um, women into his company. Um, so I want to read Luke 8, 1 through 3. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and then I'm going to reread Luke 7, 41 to 48, and we're going to talk about the story with, um, with the... the the woman at the meal. So let's pray and just uh, let's put ourselves at the mercy of a gracious king. Father, we love you and uh, we are grateful for chairs, though they're not the squishy kinds. Um, thank you for your provision. Uh, thank you for watching over us uh, as your children. We thank you that in high times and low times, um, in the clarity and in the confusion, um, in the joy and in the pain, uh, you are near. You are close, and um, that your grace is abounding to us. God, like we talked about last week, God, we, um, as a people, um, we have and are experiencing uh, tough stuff. Um, and God, your grace and your sovereignty help us to see that these things are not outside of um, your will and outside of 
your uh, kindness to us. And so even today as we, as we just consider the, the, um, the insane and unreal declaration that Jesus is God who forgives sins, that the world just can't perceive that. I pray that we would see it clearly and that our um, confrontations with the difficulties of this world would just help us to treasure forgiveness that we would know everything that we have that is good comes from your hands, and it is because you have washed away our sins. You have dealt with us in mercy and in kindness. And even when we struggle through the darkness of our own sin and the troubles of this world, uh, we can know that there is an eternal security um, of reconciliation. There is an eternal security of forgiveness. There is an eternal security of oneness with God that we have because of Jesus and because of his work. So remind our hearts again that we have been forgiven much so that we might be the kind of people who can love much um, and so that we can be the kind of people who welcome anyone to the feet of Jesus. Help us because these are not natural things. They're spiritual and we need you to do them in our hearts. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so Luke 8, 1 through 3 says this, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Okay, so Luke just very closely lists those two, the twelve and these women. Okay. Um, The list of the women, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, which is Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so Luke helps kind of fill in the blanks on this group that's following Jesus around. It's not a boys' club, right? There are women there. Um, These women are are closely related to the disciples in the fact that they are followers too. Uh, Jesus hasn't named them like the 12 as disciples. We see in that situation that Jesus is doing something very intentional that is related to the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And there's a a, a big narrative that's being pulled throughout all the scriptures when Jesus names 12 disciples. But that doesn't mean he's not teaching and leading um, and bringing into uh, just kind of his family these women as well because they're listed in this group. And then we see the list um, of these women, and it's really diverse. Um, so, I mean, if you can imagine if you have seven demons in you, you're probably not, like, filled with lots of friends and hanging out at family picnics, right? You're, you're probably on the margins of society, um, and, like Mary was. Um, and so she was, like, a known... Like, to say Mary of Magdalene... Like, it, it rang true, you know what I mean? People understood when Luke wrote that who that woman was because she was something, then Jesus healed her, and she became something else. And what she became in that something else was a follower of Jesus, somebody who was close with him and walked with him, somebody who was, who was rescued from possibly poverty, uh, at, at the very least rescued from kind of ostracism uh, and just being left to the outside margins of society and was pulled in and welcomed in. And so we see that that reality points to something specific about how Jesus wants to populate the group that follow after him, that he doesn't care how far down they've been, but he will lift them out, including this woman, Mary. And then you see Joanna, and she's probably a person of means. Um, so Herod was the king, <laughs> right? Like he was the, the, the Roman representative in Judea that was given a palace and given a throne and given power to rule. Uh, When it came time to kill Jesus, Herod was brought into the discussion because he was an authority figure in the whole situation. Um, So you can imagine there's not a whole lot of need in Herod's household, right? A lot of people taken care of, fed regularly, clothed well, um, probably riding around on horses or maybe camels at school, right? Like So Chusa is Herod's household manager, Okay, and uh, this woman, Joanna, is Chusa's wife. Okay, so she comes from a place of decent position, 
I mean, at the very least, she's got a super nice place to live, right? Probably in Herod's household home or in like the carriage house out back. I don't know exactly what the servant quarters were like, but she at least has a really nice place to live. She's probably well provided for, more than likely eating just fine. Um, And so we see that there's a person of means here, right? And she's a part of this whole crowd that's following after Jesus. And we talk a lot about how Jesus is proclaiming good news to the poor, right? Like we parked on that a couple weeks ago because that is the essential message of the gospel that, that it is good news for those who cannot do for themselves, which is all of us spiritually, but specifically such good news to those who've been told materially they have nothing, they, they can't help themselves, they're no good, right? That, the good news is such a relief to those people. But that doesn't mean it's an exclusive message only for poor people. We see a woman of means following after Jesus, right? And we see something that she does. She actually provides for, right? Verse 3 says that they provided for them out of their means. So there's above and beyond in this woman's life, in some of these other women's lives, to be a part of providing for Jesus who said, I don't have a pillow. I don't have a place to call my home like foxes that have dens and birds have nests and I, I, I don't have a place to lay my head. Right? So Jesus is poor and wandering and homeless, but he's being provided for by these people out of their means. So we see the gospel is good news for the poor, but also there are those of means that are coming and following Jesus, hearing the good news, attracted to that message, being transformed by it in such a way that they start giving their stuff to him. Right? They have less stuff because they're giving it to Jesus and his disciples. They're providing for their means. They're helping them to eat. Right? Maybe bringing them into homes occasionally. Maybe... I don't know exactly, but they're providing for them out of their means. So we do have poor women who are following Jesus, and we do have women of means who are following Jesus. And there are many others. And so Luke sees this as he's uh, kind of doing his investigative work, trying to discover what was the life of Jesus like, you know, what was his teaching like, what was his disciples like. He's discovering that in the midst of these different conversations about Jesus, that there was a lot of women following with Jesus, following with the disciples, following after Jesus. Um, And again, this was not something that was very customary in Jesus' day. A rabbi would not welcome in women to be uh, trainees, um, really. Um, Little Jewish boys would go up, do their bar mitzvah thing, and they would walk through different Hebrew schools. Uh, the, the, The girls would not. They would not go to those same schools. They would not learn the Torah in the same way that the boys would. Um, They would not move forward toward being either teachers or rabbis or priests or whatever like the men would. And so Jesus is welcoming these women in and teaching them as though they're disciples. And it's a a culturally against the grain uh, thing that's going on. And not only does he teach them and let them listen, he actually brings them into the process by welcoming their ministry, right? Welcoming their gifts to him and, and the way that they... They serve him. So Jesus is doing uh, something a little bit cult- or quite countercultural here in this, and we see that in the church that continues to move forward as uh, women are the first witnesses of the resurrection. Women are present in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes and brings new life um, and, and births, births the church. Uh, women in the New Testament are welcoming people into their homes. Uh, opening up their, uh, their businesses to give again to the needs of others. Um, they're involved in helping theologians learn better how to interpret the Bible. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla is a couple that teaches a guy named Apollos. Um, like, hey man, you're, you're a really gifted preacher, but you're really bad at some theology, so we're going to teach you. It was a husband and wife that did that together. There was a woman involved in teaching Apollo to be a better preacher of the gospel. Um, so women are involved in all these different aspects of the church, um, serving in these different things. So it carries forward not just from Jesus' ministry, uh, but onward into the church, right? And so we see that uh, it actually changed the dynamic of the culture. Um, the church was ostracized and pushed to the side for, for several hundred years uh, until eventually um, Rome said, okay, uh, Christianity is legit, Um, and then messed up the whole world and made it like the official religion, and we've been working our way backwards since then. But that was a big part of changing the whole culture because there were women involved in the church. They weren't a second-class citizen in the church, and when Rome recognized that Christianity was legit, it did something to recognizing that women were not just subpar humans, uh, but that they were uh, equal like men 
in dignity and value and worth and that they were welcomed into uh, learning to follow Jesus and then following him with everything that they have. So uh, Luke just really highlights that, and it's not the only place he does it, but this one uh, was um, potent in the fact that he, uh, he lists these women specifically. Um, so not only does Jesus associate with these women, um, but also as the story ahead of it, of, of uh, Luke 8 there shows, Jesus actually welcomes not just women, but women who are also have that tag of sinner on them, right? Uh, again, Mary Magdalene being one of those, but this woman in this story with Simon um, at this dinner, uh, Jesus shows that he's not just dismissing and writing off um, a sinful woman, but he's in fact welcoming her and using her to help Simon see the truth of the gospel, um, which is a beautiful thing. So we're going to back up and look at this passage, uh, Luke 7. Um, and it, as, as we look at this story, we're going to ask three who questions. Um, we're going to ask who is it that's touching Jesus? We're going to ask who loves more? And we're going to ask who is this who even forgives sin? Okay, so who is it that's touching Jesus? Who loves more? And who is this who even forgives sin? Uh, I want to go back and read just a por- portion of the uh, story with the woman and uh, at Simon's meal. So I'm going to start in verse 41 of chapter 7 and go to 48. So here's 41 to 48 again. A certain money lender had two de- debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom the, he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. All right, so we see this woman coming into this meal, right? So we back up to uh, even back further, verses 36 and following there. Uh, Simon is a Pharisee, and I think he's partly intrigued at some of what Jesus is doing. Uh, we don't know totally the motivation of his heart, but he welcomes Jesus into his home for a meal. Uh, we do see, though, in this situation that Simon's uh, disposition toward Jesus is not one of respect. Uh, because even a normal guest in your home in that time would get their feet washed. Okay, Most people had sandals, uh, didn't have Nikes yet. Uh, not a lot of socks around in Jerusalem or in Galilee. So when people came into the home, you would want to wash their feet off because they were walking on non-paved streets where animals tread and markets were selling stuff. You know, so your feet weren't clean. You would clean them. And then when you think about how you ate in that culture, it mattered even more that your feet would be clean, right? Because they didn't make a they didn't have high tables with chairs that slid under them where your feet are far, far, far away from the surface that you ate at. Their tables were very low to the ground, probably about the height of the benches back there or something like that, uh, maybe even lower. And they laid or leaned or something on pillows on the ground. Um, and usually they would lean in, like with the table in front of them and their feet kind of going out, like if you would, you know, like, you know, a drone looking on the table over it would look like spokes going out from a wheel with the table in the middle and the people surrounding it. So your feet were close to your food, right? Your, your, where you laid while you ate was close to where you walked. And so it made a whole lot of sense that you would really want clean feet in your home, in particular if you're bringing somebody over for a meal. So the fact that Simon says, come into my house and he doesn't wash Jesus' feet is kind of a sign of his disrespect, right? Or, or just the, the low vision Simon has of, of Jesus. At this point, Simon is not in awe of Jesus. You would not do that to someone you were in awe of. Right? At this point, Simon is not convinced Jesus is anything special. Um, he may even have been inviting Jesus to this meal to kind of disprove or discredit him. Who knows? Right? Because Pharisees are doing that on the regular. Right? They're, they're 
trying to trick Jesus or trap Jesus or get people to think Jesus isn't really that good of a teacher. Um, But in contrast to what Simon has done in regards to Jesus' feet, we see this woman and what she does to Jesus' feet. She weeps on them because Simon hasn't provided any water. She wets his feet with her tears, right? And then she takes her hair and starts to clean off Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she takes expensive ointment and rubs down Jesus' feet, right? And like lathers them up in this. I mean, she's just lavishing on Jesus this treatment of honor, right? This great respect and, and, and this bringing this like offering of dignity and acknowledgement, uh, almost like a, a, a declaration of awe. Right? Like, no, this man's feet should not be unclean. <laughs> this man's feet should not be chapped. Right? They should not be dirty and, and, and callous. These feet should be taken care of. Right? The, just the complete different position that uh, then Simon takes in this whole encounter with Jesus. And it's a bold move because we see that she's labeled a sinner. Right? She's a woman of the city which isn't a great accolade to carry, not in our day, not in their day, right? She's a woman who's had many different places to live, so to say, right? Um, She's a woman who does not get a lot of respect. Um, And it's kind of risky for her to do what she's doing, right? Because if, if she's a woman of the city, she probably feels the chagrin of a lot of the city's population, right? She probably gets the looks, you know, when the women go together and are walking down the street, you know, look and whisper. Like, that's kind of her sense of community, right? It's not very welcoming to to do what she does, to be who she is. So if she knows that's what it's like in the city, how much more so is that true of a Pharisee, right? Because they're, I mean, they're extra religious. They're the ones that stand up in public places and pray, thank you, God, that I'm not like, these people over here, you know, or like that woman of the city over there, you know, so there's just an air of this man and what the kind of conduct that he would, uh, that he would practice and how that would communicate about what he thought of her. So there's, there's just a, a, a risk that this woman takes, right? There's a risk that she, she puts herself out there to come into this home. Uh, she puts herself out there to do what the, the Pharisee wasn't willing to do, um, and she knows that it's something that's going to be talked about, right? She knows that the people will speak <laughs> of this moment. Um, yet, and, and Mike McKinley says this in his commentary on this passage, he says there's something about Jesus' teaching and ministry that had given her the strength to approach him, right? There's something about what Jesus has said. There's something about what Jesus has done. There's something about the company of the people that are following Jesus that are hearing from Jesus, that are sitting at his feet, that are receiving his teaching. Uh, there's something about just the, the, the atmosphere of, of Christ and this new movement that he's created. There's something about all of that that has made her say, I know I don't belong there. I know they know who I am. I know they have labels for me. Right? I know I'll probably be removed or kicked out or at the very least, I'll be talked about and people look down on me. I know those things are going to happen, but it, I don't care. Jesus is nearby, and I, I need to go and see him. Right? I need to go and see him. I need to go put my expression of gratitude out there for him to, to see it. I've got to do it. And so she does, right? And when she does, Simon, when you look at the verses leading up to the story that Jesus tells. Verse 39, he looks at this woman and he says, if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner, right? Simon's disposition has put him in a place of judgment against this woman where he says, if Jesus really knew stuff, right? Like if he could read between the lines like he supposedly is able to do, 
if he's, if, he could, if he's truly a prophet, which means he hears from God and he speaks on behalf of God, like if he's really a prophet, then he would have insight to know who this is, right? What sort? Simon literally has a category for this woman. He has plunked her into a category. He has sorted her among all of the humans in his city. He has sorted her and categorized her as a particular person unworthy of even talking to a man that he doesn't even think is very worthy. If he was really a prophet, he would know who this woman is, right? He's got a category for this woman. And, and uh, my good friend Jason says, if you read something in Jesus' confrontation to a Pharisee and you think about somebody else, you're doing it wrong, right? When we see Jesus confronting a Pharisee, we ought not think of the other people in our lives that Jesus is probably trying to confront. We ought to turn the mirror on ourselves and say, what is Jesus confronting in me? Right? What is Jesus confronting in me? And so we've got to ask the question, am I Simon? Am I Simon? Or how am I Simon? We won't get to what this passage is getting to until we evaluate our own life and say, at what times and in what ways do I sit in the seat of Simon? Right? And so we've got to ask these, these difficult questions. And this, listen, this is a passage that ought to, if we're kind of accustomed to church and if, if, if Christianity is, is something we've identi- identified with for, for a minute, it's something that ought to really cause us to step back and take a pause, right? Because if we're honest about the way that churches work, we have to realize that often there are women of the city who would like to come to the feet of Jesus, um, but it's risky for them to come into our environment because of the hostility that they feel from religious people. Right? And we have to be honest about that. We have to say, I get it. Like, I get it why somebody dressed like that would be afraid to come into a church. Right? I get it why somebody who identifies in this way or has been categorized by the world in this way, right? or has this history or this experience or is struggling in this way, I get it why they would think it's hard to come to Jesus. And I get it also why that difficulty would maybe over time develop some callousness in their heart to make them have a chip on their shoulder even against God, against the church, against organized religion or whatever, right? We have to step back and humbly say, I get it. And when we're able to perceive the world in that way, it changes our interactions and we start to melt and become much less like Simon and much more like Jesus, where the welcome has no qualifications, right? In Simon's world, the welcome has qualifications. In Jesus' world, it doesn't, right? And we're in a time, we're in a place and we're in a culture where we are surrounded by these sinful women, right? You just use that label from the, the passage. We're surrounded by people who've been categorized and they're understandably timid when it comes to church. They're understandably timid when it comes to approaching Jesus because probably in their past they've encountered Simon, right? Or they've got a close friend who's encountered Simon. Or they've got a mom or a dad who's encountered Simon, right? And so we don't stand and look at the world and just be like, I mean, Jesus is right here. He's always been, just come to Jesus. It's a Christian nation. I mean, you should just know. Just come. Like, everybody knows the Bible. Like, this country, like, follows Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Like, you see, wait a minute. What, like, what's our, what's our posture when we start to recognize that people have been hurt, we might begin to offer something different than what Simon offered here. Right? And so in some ways we have apologies to make. Right? In some ways we have 
intentional posture to take on uh, when it comes to interacting with those who have been timid and afraid to come to Jesus. In some ways, we've got to check our language. We've got to check our stereotypes. We've got to check our, our prejudices and our biases. We've got to check our, our, our predisposed ideas about certain people from certain places with certain temptations or certain problems. We've got to back up and say, why are those there? Be humble enough to say, maybe some of that's there at the fault of Simon. Not necessarily at the fault of the sinner. Maybe some of that exists in their heart, some of that hesitancy, some of that fear, because they've been wounded deeply. Maybe by just a regular church person, maybe by a church authority figure. Lord have mercy, throw that into the mix. Right? We've got to admit that for a long, long time, humans who say, I know God, and I love God, and I follow God, which are three things Simon would say, have hurt people badly when they've tried to approach God. Right? This is largely why we are post-Christian in America. Largely. I say largely because some places are far less post-Christian than others. This is why I try to help us look at our city and recognize the, po- recognize the post-Christian environment that we are actually in. Because if Christianity hurts like this, then our world doesn't want anything to do with it. Right? Now that's not to say that many, many people have rejected God because they've heard the gospel and said that's foolishness and walked away. Right? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Right? I've done that in my own times. Right? Um, and so we, we know that that's true of our environment as well. That people have heard the gospel for what it is, have said that's absolute foolishness, I want nothing to do with it. They haven't been hurt by anybody in the church. They haven't been wounded by any religion. They just have rejected the gospel. That's true. And I can't number the amount that's out there and the percentages. That's true. This passage would point us to recognizing that people who say they love God and know God and follow God can really hurt people when they try to approach God. Right? We have to be honest. We have to say, okay, what in me can do that? Where has my history brought me more in line with Simon, right? What have I learned? What have I taken on? What kind of behaviors are in my life? What sort of beliefs are filling me to the point where I would do what Simon does here, where I would sit back, watch somebody approach Jesus and go, if Jesus knew who that was, he wouldn't let her, he wouldn't let her by. He wouldn't let her come, right? Sit here and look at the communion table and say, God knew what kind of person was breaking bread right now. I don't think he'd be happy. Right? Like we can do some of the same things. And so I want to make just bold gospel proclamations. Most of us have heard these things before. We need to hear them again. That Jesus is showing in this moment, Luke is highlighting the whole situation, that it doesn't matter what you're known for. Right? That it does not matter how people have labeled you. It doesn't matter to Jesus which side of town you're from, what side of history you're coming from. What matters is that there's life in Jesus that is pulling people to him. What matters is that that attraction is responded to the way this woman responds to it. She responds to it with such boldness that she's willing to cast aside these just destructive opinions of religious people and say, it doesn't matter, Jesus is good enough, right? We must encourage and open the door for people to come to Jesus like this woman does, right? 
We want to help people come to Jesus with awe and respect and reverence for who he is. Right? We want to help people come to Jesus seeking his grace and desiring his mercy. Right? We want every kind of person with every type of label from every part of town to come and learn at the feet of Jesus. Right? No matter what category they're in, we want them to come and learn of him. Right? And so the good news is that when people are yearning to be reconciled to God, they can just simply come to Jesus. As they are, with their labels, and humble themselves before Jesus. Right? And if you've got a whole bunch of categories piling up in your head as to why I can't say such bold things, then you need to pay attention because the rest of this is for you. (laughs) So with that, Simon judges this woman, says, Jesus is no prophet. She's a scumbag. How could he let her come? How could he let her touch his feet? How could he accept this from her? Jesus reads all that, right? Like the, the just all-seeing eye that he is. I mean, he just sees right through Simon, who hasn't respected him at all and isn't respecting this woman at all, and he just calls him out, right, which is beautiful. So verse 40, Jesus uh, answering says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And even Simon's response, say it, teacher, right? Not Lord, (laughs) just teacher. So he's still no respect, uh, not the kind of respect that Jesus is worthy of. And he says, a certain money, money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When one could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Right? And so Simon says, Simon says, the one who had the greater debt forgiven. Right? Simon knows the answer. It's, it's apparent and clear to him. But what isn't apparent and clear to him is that he is someone who has had a great debt forgiven. Simon categorically refuses to identify with Jesus' story as a debtor. Jesus is telling a story about two other people in, my, in Simon's mind. Okay? Simon's not even in the illustration. <laughs> Simon is outside of the illustration as a non-debtor to God. And Jesus tells a story about two debtors that is meant to include Simon. <laughs> He just removes himself from the, from the whole thing. He's like, oh, I mean, I guess the one with more debt forgiven. And it doesn't dawn on him that every single person has a debt that's been removed, right? He just completely flies by this reality. Simon is the kind of person who thinks that his good deeds are enough to repay any debt that anyone would say he owes God, Right? In his position, and we know this because of the way Jesus always confronts the Pharisees, in his position, he thinks that he's righteous enough. Right? He thinks he's righteous enough to not need any debt forgiveness. That's the kind of position that Simon is in. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we more aware of our good deeds than we are of our deep need? like this woman is, right? Are we more aware? Are we concentrating more? Are we focusing more energy on our good deeds like Simon does? Or are we more aware of, more um, concentrating on, more, more humbled by our deep need like this woman is, right? It's one or the other. What do you spend your extra time doing? Dwelling on the goodness or being aware of the need, right? Because it's only going to be one or the other. And so an essential, Mike Mike McKinley says this too, an essential principle for the Christian today is this, that if we would love Christ more, we must cultivate a greater awareness of how much we have been forgiven. So so Jesus brings up the topic, who's going to love more? Right? Who's going to lavish out more? Who's going to pour out more? Who's going to wash feet more extravagantly? Who's going to to kiss and embrace? Because he's like, Simon, you haven't done a thing, buddy. And this woman hasn't stopped She hasn't stopped the tears. She hasn't stopped the ointment. She hasn't stopped the washing, right? Who's going to love more? The one that's forgiven more. And so the question for us is, do I want to love God more? Well, how do I get there? I get there like this woman does by being more aware of how much debt I've been forgiven, how high that pile 
was stacked up of my dirty deeds that needed expunging by the blood of Christ, right? How severe is our sin? One of the most potent ways to remind ourselves of the severity of our sin is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, right? There's no mention of the cross in this passage. But the severity of my sin, the severity of your sin, required the perfect Son of God to go to the most hideous cross, to be betrayed and turned over an innocent man to death and be killed in a brutal way, to be left hanging, ashamed and naked and exposed and abandoned even by God. That's how severe my sin is. That's how great my debt is. Right? The cross reveals that. And there is no, there is no uh, percentage about how much I needed that. <laughs> I needed it all. That's how great my own sin was. And so Simon is a little befuddled here. And then Jesus takes it to a whole other level when he just simply proclaims to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Right? He says, your sins are forgiven. And that's when, in verse 49, those who were there at the table, they began to say, either among themselves or to themselves. I'm not sure if they were saying this out loud or if they were saying this to themselves. I'm not 100% sure. But they were saying, who is this then who even forgives sins? So Jesus either heard them murmuring this to each other, who is this guy who even forgives sins? Or he perceived it, just like he perceived Simon saying, if Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't let her touch him, you know? So Jesus, we know, has perception of people's thoughts, right? So one way or another, he's either hearing this or perceiving this, and what does he do? He doesn't even battle with them on it. He doesn't even argue with them. He just simply turns to the woman and says to her that her, that her faith has saved her and that she can go in peace, right? Jesus just declares forgiveness to this woman and sends her away in peace. He doesn't give an opportunity for anyone to give any thought into her head that maybe she's not forgiven, right? He doesn't leave her in, 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 in tension of wondering, am I really forgiven? All these theologians are arguing on whether he can really do that or not. Jesus just pushes that stuff aside that would bring any doubt into her mind and just speaks right to her and says, it's your faith that has saved you. You can go in peace. It's just a beautiful declaration that Jesus says his forgiveness is ultimate, his forgiveness is final, and his forgiveness is divine, right? Because God alone can forgive sins, and Jesus declares it to this woman, right? Jesus declares that she is forgiven. And so we see this building of Luke chapter 7 that moves all the way to this point of the loudest and boldest declaration, and that is that Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. Jesus claimed that he was God, right? And I know sometimes we might have like this thought in the back of our heads that, man, we talk about sin an awful lot at Stonehouse Church. Like, man, we're going to talk about this all the time. Right? In a sense about maybe you think, what, what, you know, why, why can't we just talk about the good in us? You know, I mean, I thought that God was light. You know, I thought that God was love. Um, and I get this. I'm like, I, one time I had a conversation with Jason after, I don't remember what series we were preaching through. But I said to him, man, I just... Why do I feel like every week all I do is say the same thing? And he's like, because every week the Bible says the same thing. You know, it's like just again and again that we are rebellious sinners who have, who have offended a good and holy, perfect, powerful God, and he has done the extreme to rectify the situation. He came himself to be us, to experience this frailty, but yet be completely victorious and never fall into sin himself so that he alone could offer the forgiveness that we need, right? We say this again and again and again. Sometimes it seems like we're, you know, beating a dead horse, but I, I know 
that the truth of all scripture leads us not just to dwelling on our sin, but to an utter rejoicing at the welcome that God gives to us who are sinners, right? Because we are not to conclude on our sin. We are to conclude on the great grace of God. I'll never forget, I'm actually gonna, you all will get a chance to meet my brother and his wife and their kids next month. They'll be at church coming on spring break from Minnesota where it's probably like negative three degrees right now. Um, and they always give me permission to share this story, but my, uh, my brother's wife had a son when he met her and then they got pregnant and then they got married and then uh, Kaylee, my niece, was born. So I had Gavin, my nephew, and Kaylee, my niece. And then... Um, Several years into their marriage, um, my brother's wife uh, found herself in the arms of another man, I don't know how else to say that, and had another son, uh, my nephew Elijah, but it was not my older brother's kid. And so my brother really struggled, obviously, uh, with that, and uh, they divorced. Uh, My brother just couldn't figure out how to make life work with that giant issue. Um, And I remember, this was probably a period of time where me and my brother got closer than any other time in our lives, and we would have a lot of conversations about this whole situation. And I remember this one time when he told me that his wife's friends were telling her that she wasn't a worse sinner than him. And I get that, right? Like, I get all sin is completely offensive, but... They were giving really bad counsel in the fact that they were saying he didn't have any right to hold her to repentance on that issue because he was a sinner too. Um, And that was pretty bad advice because if you don't own a sin of that magnitude, um, you really can't reconcile. Um, And so for a time, she was unwilling to say, I'm the worst here, right? I'm, of the two of us, I have the greatest sin here. And she kind of maintained that you're just the same kind of sinner as me. Uh, and there was a, a, a blockade to their reconciliation, right? Um, until God did some great work in her heart and helped her to see the, the, the just colossal evil that she had done to him um, and owned it, right? Actually called it what it was. Uh, the betrayal that it was, and uh, apologized for what it was. Uh, Didn't hold my brother under the water on his sin, but rather let the weight of hers wash over her and admit it to him. Um, And it was at that time that they were able to begin the process of reconciling. Um, And I remember my brother saying the whole time that he loved her, and he never stopped, but he didn't understand how to get through all that crazy stuff. Um, and then when they began to see that crack, that shell just kind of break and the, the opportunity for real forgiveness to come in there was when there was ownership of everything, right? And there was, uh, there was not an excuse and a pointing and a, and a, well, I was doing this because you were doing that, but there was just, a, there was just an outright repentance that came from her. Um, and in October 2014, I got to marry them back together again in my parents' backyard. Um, with all three kids present, and uh, they've pursued marriage and healing and reconciliation ever since that day, obviously not without its bumps uh, along the road, um, but today they're reconciled. Today they've, they've come together and they're one again um, because sin really came out and was really dealt with and then was really forgiven. Right? And this is, this is the situation with God, so long as we stand back and blame our history. Right? So long as we stand back and say, well, you don't know what they did to me. You know, well, yeah, sure I did that, but you know, my mom did and my dad did, and I know they did. I know they did. But we don't get to pull ourselves out of the equation as a non-offensive party. We are participants in the rebellion of God, willfully, willingly. Uh, we are a part of it. And sin is more than just really bad things that really bad people do on really bad days, right? Sin is something that's pervasive, right? It's more than just actions. It's in our hearts, 
right? It's more than just deeds. It's in our desires, right? It's a, it's a bent of our will that wants to pursue self rather than pursue God, wants to elevate self rather than elevate others, right? I mean, it's just this, it's so, per, listen, it's so pervasive that I don't even get through a sermon without sin, okay? Not a single one. I can't look at God and say, well, there's 45 minutes, <coughs> 55 minutes where I was sin-free. Like, I can never say that on any week, Right? And that may make you go, what? Come on. Preacher sinning while he preaches? Yes. Right? In my mind, in my thoughts, with some of my words and attitudes, I am falling short of the glory of God right now. That's how pervasive sin is. That's how deep your debt is. And that's how colossal the forgiveness of Jesus is. Right? It's just glorious. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Man, you're forgiven. Right now, if you were to walk into a room with Moses and Abraham and Elijah and Daniel and Jesus. Jesus would not ignore you. He would not sweep you aside for more important things. Right now, with every last one of this last week's failures in your mind, right now you could walk into that room and get nothing but a welcome like the prodigal son returning. Kill the fat calf, get some fancy sandals, throw a robe on my kid's neck. Right now. That's for you. And that's what we want everyone that we live near and work with, and study with, and drive next to, and sometimes curse out on the freeway. We want every one of those people to know that that is true for them. That right now, in this room, they can just walk right up to Jesus with whatever label they have and come and let Jesus deal with them. And guess how he's first going to deal? And those who have been forgiven much will love much. Let's be them. <laughs> Let's be the ones that love much because we know we've been forgiven much. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. You are nothing but goodness, nothing but holiness, nothing but purity. You have done no unrighteous deed. You have spoken no uh, perfect, uh, imperfect word. You have never had a rebellious, fractured attitude toward God. And yet you welcome this woman of the city. You welcome me. You welcome us. And you call us family. You call us forgiven. You call us yours. You call us clean with, with one declaration. All our sin is gone. You call us worthy of your attention. You call us worthy of your love. You call us worthy of eternal peace. all because of Jesus and because our faith in him washes everything else away. God, might we identify with this woman rather than Simon. By your spirit, would you help us identify the places where we sometimes are like Simon? 
whether we've looked at categories of people in that way or people that deal with a certain past in that way or people that have particular temptations, if we look at them in that way. God, not only do we ask you to forgive us, but we ask you to show us what we've been forgiven for. Might we see our debt so that we can see your great grace. In this, we have hope of transformation, that we can start to love like Jesus loved, that we can start to go to the places where the unwelcomed people are and begin to speak of God's welcome to them. Make us your ambassadors. We love you. We need you. It's a desperate cry that we have here today, that you would work by your spirit to make us like you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.